The following episode of The New Disruptors was recorded live in front of an audience at Galapagos Art Space in Brooklyn. Thanks to Galapagos for hosting us. The recording was part of the Nearly Impossible Conference and sponsored by Shopify. Shopify is a powerful e-commerce website solution. Visit them at shopify.com slash nd. Welcome to this special live taping of the New Disruptors at Galapagos in the Dumbo District of Brooklyn, a place where if you clap hard enough, your Kickstarter will fund. <laughs> I'm Glenn Fleischman, your host, the editor and publisher of the magazine. We're here as part of, as Rusty said, the Nearly Impossible Conference. I have people on stage who will show it is nearly impossible, but not entirely impossible to make things happen. Thank you to Shopify for sponsoring this podcast. Somewhere in the middle, I will tell you a little bit more about Shopify. We'll take a pause. So our special treat tonight is five guests, all of whom know the pain and the joy. There's both, right? Tell me there's both. Okay, some nods, good. Not just pain of making stuff on their own, figuring out how to make it work. And so from my left, your right, onwards, I have Taylor Levy and Wei Wang of CWT the makers of Pen Type A, a one-bit, one-hertz CPU, many other interesting projects, temporarily former New Yorkers. They're now at the MIT Media Lab in Cambridge, Massachusetts. To their left is Jessica Heltzel. She co-produces the publication and the resulting book, Kern and Burn. It's about design entrepreneurs. It sounds familiarly similar to what we're going to talk about tonight. You probably have some stories not only of your own but of other people. And she lives in New York. And to her left... It are Tom Gerhardt, and then to his left, Dan Provost. They are Studio Neat, makers of Glyph, Cosmo, uh, Cosmonaut, sorry, and in progress, the Neat Ice Kit. And one of them is still a New Yorker. Raise your hand. <laughs> and the other one now lives somewhere out west, unknown parts. That's uh, so far Dan away. says Austin, Texas, not into the microphone. That is right. Don't let anyone know. Austin is just Brooklyn. It's just warmer there, I think. Uh, so tonight we're going to talk about challenges, surprises, and celebration. And I previously, we, I talked to everybody via email and said, you know, I've talked to several of these folks before. Jessica's the only one I haven't interviewed for the podcast before. So, and I know every, everyone's careers quite a bit. And I think one of the reasons that we create things as we're looking for something. We want to bring something new into the world. It's why we have children. It's why we make products. And as someone who has not made products, I've made books, I've made things like that, I'm always fascinated what leads to the genesis of things and where there are the stumbling points along the way. And, um, and Taylor, uh, one of your, I think the best-known project that you guys have done so far has been uh, Pen Type A, and that made a big splash on Kickstarter. Uh, you had to make an enormous number of these these uh, the housings for pens, a ruler that went along with it, and um, it was a much larger quantity than you'd expected. Now, I, I talked about challenges. What came along in the process? What was the thing along the way of making, you know, of, of this huge undertaking and manufacturing system? What took you, uh, what challenged you the most along the way? Uh, so, uh, I guess the most surprising thing was there were challenges at pretty much every single step along the way. Uh, the thing that comes to mind right now, thinking about this, is I guess there was a point in our campaign where we were getting shipments of these pens, and the ruler sleeves had a bunch of oil that was trapped inside the base of them, 
and we had no idea where this oil was coming from. And we were working very closely with our manufacturers. They were in our studio in Brooklyn, and we had a couple hundred pens, and we were washing them out with dish soap, and he wouldn't tell us how they were actually manufacturing the pens, so we couldn't figure out and help them solve the problem because they considered that a proprietary thing or a trade secret to their manufacturing process. So that was incredibly frustrating, and eventually he left, and we just said, you know what, we're going to saw this pen in half and actually see how you're going to make it. And once we did that and showed it to them, all of a sudden, like, some barriers were broken. But that type of misalignment of priorities was one of the most difficult things. You've done a lot more work with manufacturers since then. Have you figured out a way to bypass that kind of thing, or do you still, every time there's something that comes up that was totally unexpected, then you have to conquer, um, conquer it. Yeah, that specific thing I think was pretty special. But every time, I mean, even last week we had, um, we, have, we have a fantastic manufacturer right now, but it depends always who's working on what you're doing and which engineer decides to make a decision and says, oh yeah, that looks great to them, but we, and they decide to make a change and they never really check in with us before they do that change, which can be a tricky thing. So you have to maintain ongoing quality control, consistency yes. checking, even while you're well underway. Yeah, constantly. That's really, wow. That's, I mean, that, and that's the thing, that's not ex- something you expected at the beginning of this journey. Did you have an, or I should ask, did you have an idea that once you went into production, things are done? You know, we're ready, we figured it out, we've mastered it, now it's just going to happen. Yeah, we thought that that was going to be the ideal, but now we know way better than that. That even when, right now we're at a point where we have our pens made somewhere, they get shipped to a fulfillment place. We, in theory, don't really need to touch them, but we still touch them pretty much every day. <laughs> and, that yeah. explains, but, you, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. I'm just saying, we, we at Studio Neat have the exact same surprise that this is not a perfect machine-driven process that doesn't break down, right? So um, we just got an email from a customer like yesterday. It was like, oh, I was using, my Cosmonaut was working really great on my previous iPad, but I got the new iPad Air, and it like didn't work as well. We're like, ah, so we like, rushed out to the Apple store to like, check, you know, check it out. And so not only are there shifting manufacturing, you know, like QC things that you have to always keep up and going, like, you know, the things that fit into your products or those parts can, like, shift out from under you all the time, right? So it's this, like, never-ending uh, quicksand kind of situation. Well, that's great. So you're always manufacturing the product. You're always designing it, even when it's in production. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, Or, you know, things just always... We are always surprised when we open up a case of our product that we haven't seen, right, from the manufacturer. Um, because there'll just be something that's a little bit weird and it's like something very minor usually like very minor but because we're such perfectionists that kind of drives us crazy and so it's always like oh you know we need to like add another QC step basically we're just like building up these like QC controls to the process oh that's great so but now how does that affect the price when you're working on this because I would think that I mean you folks had a very with the pen type A for instance had a pretty aggressive price because you thought you were going to make a small quantity, and now you sell it for a, a much larger uh, amount. Um, and I, I know, I think the glyph has wound up being, is it the same price now as it was then? Does this yep. affect, I mean, I guess you get advantages of scale, but do you have to work in quality control and sort of continuing process management into the cost of what you do? We just eat that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it comes out of margin. Yeah. That's interesting. 
And and when you think about um, and I'll Jessica, I'll talk about books. I swear to God, we're gonna, this is the funny thing. It's like we have meta stories and stories and stories within stories. But so in the, the studio neat environment, you've got you've done now, I guess three, uh, you know, between um, uh, Glyph, Cosmonaut, and uh, now the Neat Ice Kit. Um, you've got a sort of longitudinal experience a, a, along the planning. What did you learn between the first, second, and third projects? that helped you in planning to factor in variability and watch out for your water glass. <laughs> There's water everywhere in here, but we don't want it exactly everywhere. Um, well, you could maybe argue we didn't learn enough uh, moving from the first project to the second. Um, so we got tricked. Yeah, we got tricked. So the glyph uh, was an incredibly smooth experience, which we thought was the norm, but turns out is not the norm at all. Uh, so we expected the same thing with our second project, the Cosmonaut, and it turned out that was not the case at all, and we ran into you know tons of problems and manufacturing delays and all these tell, things. So. Tell us about some of those, because <laughs> I, I don't will. actually. I want to say not all horror stories, but I think it's the process of learning that it's that's important. But yeah, so Cosmonaut, you had a, you had a lot more difficulties in getting from prototype into production. Right. Yeah. So I mean, to us, it, it seemed like a, a simple object, and to customers, it is a, a simple object. But the there were lots of difficult aspects. But I think the the trickiest one was the capacitive tip. Because um, we were balancing basically uh, flexibility, low friction, and capacitance. And those three factors together in one material, uh, A, you know, we're not material experts, and it seemed like we couldn't find anyone that was an expert in that specific thing. So it was just a long journey of finding the right people who could help us and countless prototypes. And we ended up actually switching manufacturers when we realized the first one we were with wasn't able to produce the part that we needed. Um, so just a long process of, of getting it to where it needed to be. Uh, fortunately, there was, it was a pretty clear uh, understanding of if it worked or not. Like, we had a clear threshold of, like, <laughs> we pushed this to the iPad. Like, does it actually, like, draw a line? Did, did you have a problem with the new iPads? Did it turn out there was uh, with the latest iPad, Retina, whatever they're calling them? Yeah, Apple, I mean, Apple fiddles with the... the sensitivity and the threshold and the components they're using for that stuff. So it's different for every iPad. Um, it's been fine so far, but like for instance, the first generation iPad is more like responsive or sensitive. You can use like less pressure and that's just like something that's completely and utterly out of our control. It's kind of, at least it doesn't feel like terrible because every single stylus manufacturer is play, is, has the same problem. Like it's not a, it's like Apple's thing that they're doing. So um, it's just kind of, the realities of being attached to someone like Apple, right? But um, it's okay. Yeah, it's, it's always a moving target. Kind of. I, I'm so surprised that your third project involved no moving parts. That's such a no, no interaction with the screen. Yeah, that's really great, actually. <laughs> I'll, we'll come back to that in a moment. So, Jessica, the printing industry, of course, all problems are solved and everything works exactly the same every time in the right, same way, right? Well, that assumes that you know what you're doing. Uh, well, I've never published a book before. Where, so. where did you come from getting into print? Because uh, I know that's, I mean, print is like it's old-fashioned and new again to everybody at the same time. How did you get involved in trying to produce print publications? So when we started the blog, which was the 100 Days of Design Entrepreneurship, um, we really just didn't have an, have an objective at that point. We sort of were using the blog as a way to just sort of talk about the topic of design entrepreneurship. Um, and we 
this was also for our thesis at, at graduate school, so we sort of knew we had to make something like per the requirement and weren't sure if we were going to get away with just making a blog. And <laughs> although that was a lot of work, as any bloggers who do it for a living know, um, so we sort of just let it evolve with momentum and decided that around day 50, we'd sort of gotten a lot of traffic to the site and thought that we would try to kickstart um, a project that would go along with it. And I really love publishing and print um, that medium, so I really wanted to make a book. So we did that, we kickstarted it, and um, that's sort of where the book came from, because we wanted to sort of create this artifact, um, physical artifact that would go along with the digital medium. Um, and then sort of like a moment in time, because the stories in the book itself are ever-shifting, especially with the startup world, like some of the companies don't exist anymore. <laughs> like, in the book's been out for six months. <laughs> so I think that's really interesting and a fear I had, I guess, about like locking those things into print, but also liking that aspect at the same time so that it's something that we can continue to replicate. Well, that's great. I never thought about it that way, right? Because on the web, it's, ma it's malleable. You could post updates. You could change things. Someone said, I've been sued. Take the profile down. But once it's in print, it's permanent in a different way. Right. How much did the printers help you or the printing companies or reps? I mean, this is a process now. I'm about to go through this with the book. I have a background in printing, but I really haven't had anything printed for a decade. So the industry's changed enormously. How much help did you get from the folks who actually – I want to talk to everybody about that too because the manufacturing assistance has been interesting, I think, in everyone's case as well. Yeah. But how much help did you get from so that So we got a – not a lot of pre-production help. We got a lot of help from our friends, which is really great. Um, people who have been in journalism for a long time, just in terms of pre-press, setting up things for print. I'm relatively new to graphic design in general, so there was a lot of learning on the fly happening, like, one week before I was supposed to go to press. For instance, like, not having a baseline grid, like, core things to a book um, that I thought I was just fine. But So we had a lot of help during press itself. So we worked with a company called Shapco. Um, you guys might know them. They're in Minneapolis. They're a great printer. Um, they've printed a lot of Kickstarter books. They printed Frank Shamero's book. Um, so we, were, we went on press, and that was really great because we had... So a lot of the projects in the book were projects that live online. So I had a lot of problems with image quality, actually. Like, a lot of people not having high-res images, and I didn't know how that was going to translate. So I had, like, 72 DPI. We printed 72 DPI images, but what saved us is because it's a two-color book. So all of these things were sort of fortunate. Like, if it was a four-color book, I think it would have been screwed. Like, it would have looked terrible. But so there was some ability to like, change some of these things on press, being there, like, that kind of stuff. So that was really helpful. Um, but, yeah, I was having, I had, like, a mental breakdown <laughs> before we went on press because I just, you know, it's this thing that you've been working on. I'm sure it's the same with any physical product, like, actually giving the go-ahead. And I think you just got to learn to let go. And even though it's a book and it's, like, forever, you know, you can still print a second edition. So oh, let's, let's talk about that moment, the moment that you say... Okay, so the same way, when did you hit the button for any, any of the things you're working on in quantity like where you said to the manufacturer, make 10,000? That, that, or did you have that moment where you just sort of hit the button yeah, and said, let it go? It happened, for us, it happened several times because we're super naive when we went into it. So the first time, we're just like, ah, oh, everything's fine, let's just go. And then I think every time we do it, we just become more cautious. So like now... We're just like, I think, overly cautious to the point where we're not launching products at all. We're just like so afraid that something's going to go wrong or the manufacturing's not perfect yet or all these things. So I think 
you know, there's like a balance. We kind of have to dial it back a, re- a little bit right now and be like, maybe it's okay that everything's not perfect, perfect. How do you decide the tolerance? Because, yeah, <laughs> you're a woman after my own heart. The, the, how do you decide the tolerance? Though? I mean, I have that perfectionist thing, but I think one of the reasons that I am able to ship is that there's some point in which I hit, I cross some line between like the good and the perfect, and it's like, and for me, sometimes it's a little low. That's my problem. That's why I get other people, I get collaborators involved who say, let's turn that dial up a little bit. How do you figure out that point? So for Taylor, it's 100%. And yeah, so my, my threshold is definitely lower. And so it's an argument that we have, and we, we somehow find that line between the two of us. Um, but yeah, I'm always lower than Taylor is. Hand the mic to Taylor. What's Taylor's side of that story? <laughs> yeah, I think sometimes Sewe and I are willing actually to compromise on different things. In terms of how they look and meeting our specifications, we're pretty much on the same level. But sometimes I have to admit that I'll have a bad feeling about something, and Sewe will ask me to try to explain that, and sometimes I won't be able to that well, but it will make us not go ahead. <laughs> well, you've, it feels like, uh, I know you folks do, um, I mean, there's a line between like commerce and aesthetics and pure, pure art that you straddle across and some things get made, some are prototypes, some are things meant for production, some are things that are just meant to appreciate or to spark thought. So it seems like you would have, do you have different thresholds for each of those sorts of projects where you say this is done and ready? Yeah, I guess so. I guess the threshold is actually probably the highest when it's, with our own work, maybe? Yeah. But our own work that... Uh, maybe not. Because sometimes you can make something that can work just for a little bit, and that's okay for some piece, like an installation, or... Yeah. But the level of detail that goes into that is a lot... It's a lot harder for us to get right, I think. Uh, so I don't know. Tom, what is, what's your button-pressing moment where you said, uh, let, let, okay, well, we're going to make 500, 5,000. Here, yeah. Go. It's, um, it's funny. With this neat ice kit, you know, we, I think we're working with like seven manufacturers. Well, and so, yeah, let, Let's explain because I'm, sure, I'm not sure everyone in the audience or yeah. the listeners at home. Well, well no, the neat ice it. kit, I'll tell you about it. Tell it us. is uh, the most fussy ice kit you could possibly have. So if you are very fussy and picky about making cocktails, the thing you can't really do at home is have really clear, beautiful ice. And so Dan and I were like, let's get more fussy about cocktails. And so we figured out how to make really clear ice at home. Um, so it's this kind of whole kit where you can freeze this ice in a special way, and then we give you like a club and like a chisel to like break the ice apart how you want. So it's this whole kit. Um, and because of that, there's a bunch of parts, kind of. It was really like seven parts, but... So it got, you know, pretty complex setting this all up before the Kickstarter. And so the point where we could submit POs and say, purchase order, that became like a win for us, like every day. Like, hey, I submitted all the POs. Like, we're done. Like, it's all. So, because um, I think we've learned that the PO is just the first step of, okay, we've decided on this spec, right? Um, and you're still in this, like, honeymoon period where things could go well, right? Um, but we're actually at the stage right now where we're getting production prototypes, and, and that's when the problems come, right? Where it's like, oh, I know, what, like, we, uh, manufacturer, we agree, like, what this is supposed to be, and then they're like, well, this is what we made, and it's like, well, different sometimes. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, that's kind of when the sadness comes, um, but, uh, <laughs> but it's good, you know, you work through it. I mean, the thing is, I think we've, 
we're at the point now where we expect that nothing is going to come back perfect the first time. And if uh, we can get a part that's back to like this to spec for the first time, we're like, this is awesome. Um, but that's definitely not the norm. So we're kind of used to that blow. It's really been softened now that we're used to. We know there's a battle to fight um, into production. This brings up one of my favorite words that I use throughout the podcast over and over. Actually, it's, it's non-ironic. It's the opposite of ironic that I use the word iterate over and over again, I think. Um, but iteration seems to be, for me, I think I've talked to all of you guys about this at some point. Like, it's like the foundation of design. Jessica, how much did iteration come up when you were, uh, you know, you had to do, well, you iterated in different ways. I mean, one was you talked to an enormous number of people, mm-hmm. but then you had a process to go through to take all of that, produce publications, and then... A book. How much was raw work versus iteration as you turned it into something, testing and trying? Well, I think I designed every spread like 30 times. So, and there's not that many. So, I mean, I think, yeah, I think what they don't tell you about printing a book is that it's so labor intensive in different ways that aren't design. So it's editing, it's getting approval, especially in an interview book with 30 plus people and making sure they read what they said and if they're okay with what they said and telling them again and again that it's going to be in print, so please read it. Um, So I think it's like a lot of, you know, sort of managing behind the scenes work and then design on top of it and creating systems and stuff like that and systems that work throughout an entire book. So I think it's a lot of iteration in one in one single product, but also I think we should we do a second book, you know, or volume two or whatever, however we continue to iterate the overall essence of Kern and Burn, we'll definitely be iterating on what that is. So, so but I guess the question too is, uh, there's like, I always think about like sacrifice work. It's the stuff you've done that you didn't need to know, but you or didn't need to do, but you didn't know when you did it, you didn't need to do it. Have you all, anybody, if it's a comment, like any of you found that you've figured out how to remove that part and then become more efficient, even if you're doing, say, the same amount of work, but you feel it's more productive across the whole process? Well, one thing specific to Kickstarter, I think a lot of people, I don't know how you guys feel, um, this idea of rewards, like adding like a million things, tote bags, pencils, everything, stickers, coasters, all this stuff is totally unnecessary. (laughs) And I think that idea of fulfilling you know, a thousand packages full of other things besides the actual product you want to make is not, there's, there's a good way to do it, but I think that's one lesson I learned is that you don't need to make 18 different things to, to fulfill a great Kickstarter um, because then it just takes away from the actual product. So. I have one contradictory story about that, but it's the only one. I think it's the one that proves the rule is the Dr. Demento film, of all things, the end product is a movie, they're shooting about Dr. Demento, but they had like a hundred million rewards, but it's because these things were unavailable to anybody else. So if you wanted a specific Dr. Demento kazoo, you could only get it. So they had this matrix that was like this, of all the different things and levels and add-ons, and it worked. They raised a ton more money because of it, but I think it's the only one like that. I don't know. That's a demented way to do things. Think that's exactly. It was perfectly in thing. Well, it's also it's a nonsense. You need to bring nonsense in. But so uh, when I know Pen Type A was sort of a, a simpler project. As you've conceived of new, uh, new crowdfunding or new projects, you do have you reconceived of exactly what Jessica's talking about? Like how you will approach what kinds of things you'd offer, or, yeah. or do you I like the simplicity? We're definitely not ever going to do any more add-on things. Like we. We thought it was a good idea, and 
what we did was offer hand-drawn postcards, which meant we would have to hand-draw each postcard, which ended up being uh, over 200 postcards that we would have to hand-draw. And then for some people, we got special requests where they would send photos of their favorite animal, and we would draw the animal, or like we would draw a portrait, and it just got insane. And so that was a really good lesson to us to be like, oh yeah, it's not about the postcard, it's about you know something else so we shouldn't be doing that so next time if it's a thing it's going to be like it's like reward a hundred and x dollars thing yeah and that's the whole i think that's the way to do it what do you think tom and dan yeah i mean we agree with that and so that's what we've done and have been doing so with the neat ice kit there was just two rewards uh you could get the kit with one mold or the kit with two molds and that was it and i definitely think that uh Simplicity is, has served us well. And then another kind of uh, aspect of this is this idea of stretch goals, which has become like a, a new thing. And um, I think that can certainly work for some projects. Uh, but uh, there's a really good blog post on Kickstarter explaining why that's problematic. And it basically had to do with, you know, you've, you've promised us one thing, and, and like, say it was Taylor, like, was saying it, it just uh, starts to distract from the main thing that you initially promised. So we try to just keep it, uh, you know, as simple as possible what we promised and uh, not try to let these distractions come in. Oh, yeah, I like that. I mean, I was, we were talking sort of about purity of form of, like, what you're doing, but there's an in- interesting thing that I've come up against. I've talked to folks about who are planning and in planning some work that I'm doing, which is the... What is the point of a Kickstarter? So 99% Invisible, very popular podcast. They're, they've crossed $200,000 for their fourth season. It's phenomenal. And they're sort of reinventing what public radio may be. But their thing is you get tchotchkes because the thing you are funding is free to everybody. Everyone gets 99% Invisible, which is sort of – so you're funding a concept. When we're dealing with products, you're funding a thing. Where is the dividing line there? Do you, it sounds like you guys have all come down the line of we are making a thing and the reward is the thing. Is there any room in there for, for stuff or ideas or, or outside of that? Well, one thing that's not the thing itself that we tried to sell um, was this idea of like Tim and I coming to your school and like teaching a workshop. So sort of more experiential stuff um, I think is cool to add on. Um, this is valuable for you as a creator and then also for your backer. Um, I mean, it could be, I don't know. I think it's, it has to be pretty unique to be worth it. Like the coaster t-shirt, maybe not as much. Yeah, there's a point in life, uh, it was a publication I worked for, and we talked about doing mugs and T-shirts, and we were all old enough. We're like, we don't want anybody else to have to accumulate more mugs and T-shirts. Every, we're done with that. We have all the mugs. that'll. My wife is making me give up two mugs because I got some new ones. And like, that's the point in life you reach. But it's funny. You know, the merchandise makes some worlds go around, and T-shirts are like Jonathan Colton talks about very openly. Like, T-shirts run his life. He hates fulfilling them because they're a pain to fulfill, but they are a big part of it. Uh, Jessica, you have this sort of meta story because you talk to dozens and dozens of people mm-hmm. about their process and how they approach it. And I wonder, is, are there consistent themes you see on the on the creative end? I mean, everyone always asks, where do you get your ideas? Where does this come from? And I know there's always a tension between you know, materialistic things, between art, between what's going to sell. Mm-hmm. Did you find common themes about how designers approached this as entrepreneurs? Yeah, so... There are a few. One of the main ones I think it's really important for any designer who wants to start a business is to solve a problem for yourself. Um, 
Because oftentimes, and many of the people we talk to in the book, um, just were simply solving an idea that they wanted to see become real. Um, and that would could be, you know, something they kickstart or a publication or something else. But oftentimes, because starting a business is really hard, um, you're not going to be as passionate about it or as, like, cutthroat to have, like, to make it through the highs and lows of, you know, the trials of starting something. And so that was one of the main themes I think everyone said is that it often was just, like, for example, Airbnb was started because they needed conference space and they decided to stay with a friend and rent it out because the entire city was booked. And they were like, oh, cool, maybe we have an idea for starting something huge. Um, but, it, you know, it was just something they were solving for themselves. So that was the main one. It's the itch you need to scratch for yeah. yourself. But um, uh, Taylor and Sayway, I know you have this great thing we talked about in our podcast, but it's long enough ago, I'll bring it up again. The, the wheelbarrow HDTV set, which I know, t- talk about that process because I think it was, um, it seems like it was a little bit of a goof, but it turned into something else. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I think the way I try to develop design projects is through not thinking about the project but just by playing around with stuff so like the wheelbarrow thing just came about because we have a lot of pipe lying around our studio because I like cutting pipe and putting pipe together and it just so happened that we had one inch pipe lying around which happens to be the same size as a fork uh, this where the fork attaches to the bike is also one inch or one and an eighth, but ours is one inch. And so it's like, you know, you have this stuff lying around and we needed a TV stand and we wanted our TV stand to be able to wheel around our apartment. And it just seemed like a supernatural thing to just take the extra bike fork that we had, the extra bike wheel we had, the extra one inch pipe that we had lying around and just machine everything together to mount a TV onto it. And it, and it ended up looking okay, so then we, now we're just like trying to finagle it into a real product. It seems like this is a problem um, that a lot of companies solve, which is uh, there's all these kits to match mount HDTV sets on a wall. But that only works if you want it to be there all the time, or if you have a wall that works that has studs or supports it. But this is an idea that's born out of necessity for you. You didn't want the HDTV set lying in the room or, uh, or someplace all the time. Right, yeah. So I... I think it looks really good, <laughs> uh, but I think people think it might be really silly, but really it is out of necessity. Like we love, we want to have our TV in our living room and we want to have our TV in our bedroom, but we don't have, we don't want to have two TVs. So it really made sense for us. And they weigh a lot. So far we don't have floating televisions. So the, the weight of it is an issue. Mm-hmm. You move it around. A wheelbarrow is great. You know, single wheel is a great, it's a great uh, simple uh, machine, right? Mm-hmm. We love simple machines. Um, uh, I think uh, uh, there's this um, great inflection point where people go from working on things part-time or in their spare time to full-time, as I look around. And I think, Jessica, you have the reverse of that. And Tom and Dan, you have, you know, you kind of went in one way and Jessica went the other. Um, we should talk about that because, I mean, that's a real concern for people who we watch products take over their lives. Uh, Jessica, you were in graduate school. This was a graduate school project. And then... You got a job, right? Right. Um, so it went from becoming a full-time school. Well, we always viewed it as a job, whether or not we were in school. So full-time effort for you know the first year we were building it, and then we moved to New York and needed to finance life here, <laughs> which can be fairly expensive. Um, and so it wasn't really a thing that we wanted to monetize right away. And also the idea of monetizing something is 
a lot of pressure on the idea and like the enthusiasm behind it. So I feel like we went through, we've sort of gone through this period in the past couple of months where we've decided not to try and make it our life um, just so that we can continue to ship things and like make products. Because I think once we had this scary idea of trying to go full time with it, then we stopped, we stopped producing because it became, it was sort of an interesting thing I didn't think was going to happen. Um, so anyway, now we both have full time jobs and, I'm I'm wanting to go back to some sort of like masochistic eight-hour workday after work just because I love working on Cronenberg so much. It's really hard. It's hard to do the full-time side project. I think side projects are really important. I think you should always have them, um, even if you're working full-time. I think it's just hard to balance that. So I'm sort of in the midst of not knowing what my ratio is right now. This seems like a very modern problem. It's like Kickstarter, you know, and, and other uh, crowdfunding, a lot of different models like that, pre-orders and the ability to make things easily, much more easily. Like that's one side. The other is the how much does it take over everything when you didn't expect it? And as a longtime freelancer, I actually have some steady stuff now for the first time in my life, I think. But as a longtime freelancer, like you're trying to balance the amount of work so that you don't have the, you know, three weeks of 20-hour days if you can help it. But Kickstarter doesn't enforce that, but it kind of makes it happen. Dan and Tom, you guys had actual full-time jobs, and then you did this crazy thing. That was an interesting transition for you, wasn't it? Yeah, we were pretty wussy about it, too, I'd say. Uh, so, yeah, we, uh, Dan and I just, on, the, on a lark, put the glyph on Kickstarter, and, and this was before there were really huge Kickstarters. And so uh, when it kind of blew up, uh, we were like, oh, crap, we have like a business on our hands now. <laughs> Um, and, and, you know, we then, I didn't kind of commit to doing full-time. We kind of kept our jobs for six months or so. Um, and then when we had our second Kickstarter kind of start and looked like it was going to be successful, we're like, okay, it's, it's time now. Um, and I think when we talk about this kind of, like, decision, like, how did you decide to go full-time, um, I think we always think about it as just, like, getting forced into the decision. Uh, I think... That's kind of how we make most of our decisions, where we, we try to keep it as simple and minimal as we can. Um, but then when we just can't do that anymore, that's when we do it. And I think for us, that's meant that we've grown really organically um, and kind of approached. Um, we haven't like had this vision like, we're going to have twice as much revenue by X year. We're like, our approach is very much the opposite, where we're basically trying to remain happy <laughs> And remain making things that we, like, really love and we think are, like, delightful and great. Um, and so that's kind of our barometer and not, like, this kind of growth curve or something. So any, so long story short, I mean, I think it's a – for us, it's been about, like, getting forced into it. Um, so we knew when we left our full-time job that we are choosing between either having a company and continuing to do these projects or, or not. Um, so that's kind of what it is. I like that answer, too, because the thing that – Tim and I were grappling with was this idea of trying to force Kernenburn to be a business when it's not ready to yet. Like it's still ready. To, it's still like a great side project, but I think we will make it a business when it's ready to be one. And like the idea of forcing into it um, is a great metaphor just because like there's no other way to continue it versus like trying to make it fit something. Yeah. I have a great segue too, because it's time to talk about our sponsor who helps people turn 
side projects into businesses or businesses into side projects. It's, I want to thank Shopify because they brought me out here and made this evening possible, uh, this first half uh, having all these folks here on stage and making it all work. Shopify is one of the world's leading e-commerce platform. It currently powers tens of thousands of online retailers. This includes major names like General Electric, Tesla Motors, and Foo Fighters. It could include you. <laughs> Not too late. Shopify's mission is simple. It's to make e-commerce better, easier, more accessible for all businesses, large and small. They don't just give you a platform to build your store, but they also provide tools to help you market it. This includes mobile commerce version of your site for free. So when you build a site, you can profit from the folks on the go. They integrate with 50 payment gateways, including PayPal, so that everyone who comes doesn't have to figure out how to pay. They can just pay with the way they know. Their advanced e-commerce marketing features help drive your online store's sales, and they have 24-hour customer service. Friendly, efficient. They're there all the time. I don't know how they do it without sleeping, but... That's what the worldwide global e-commerce system is about. Uh, you can take existing stores, if you have them, and transfer them to the Shopify platform. You can find them at shopify.com slash nd, like new disruptors. Let them know we sent you, and uh, we can do more events like this in the future, I hope. So thanks to Shopify for bringing me to Brooklyn and making this podcast possible. Thanks very much. And uh, like I say, perfect segue, right, because we're talking about how you turn... How you turn dreams into businesses. There seems to be a constant um, tension. And this was XOXO, which, uh, which uh, everyone should go to. It's a wonderful event, even though they sell out. So I don't know how everyone can go. But somehow we'll figure that out. Brand, I was saying they should do like TEDx, and you do t- like XOXOX. <laughs> X Dumbo. Uh, but, the, but that's the tension there. Is like, where is the line between things you love and things that you have to turn into a business to make happen? Taylor, you guys went to graduate school, and then you've had a five-year... So you can look at it. It's the figure-around thing. Either you've had a five-year break from school, or you've had a five-year... Uh, you've had a five-year business that was a sidetrack from getting back to school. So you were at... You uh, started at, um, in New York at the... Uh, tell me the formal name. I've forgotten. Uh, it's ITP, which is Interactive Telecommunications Program. And that's at... That's at NYU. NYU. And so, which a lot of people... I know there's the Tisch program in NYU... There's these great programs here. I talk to so many people who come through them because they make you think about squeezing different things together in different ways. The, the woman who just did the project about um, high fructose corn syrup, how it gets made from scratch, and she, you know, do-it-yourself high fructose corn syrup. It's terrifying and interesting. <laughs> you don't want to know what goes into it, but now we do. But so you had this five years of work where you did design, you did projects for yourself and for other people. Now you're back at MIT Media Lab. Has that been challenging to go back after being kind of your own bosses and doing your own thing for five years to get back in the academic environment? Uh, In that respect, not really that challenging because I feel like a lot of the things that we're doing, it feels like a very natural transition and that most of the work that we do is for ourselves and we're at school at a place that we can can essentially, they're there to... we can, we can do our own projects, even though we have exposure to all different types of projects and we're able to work on things that we wouldn't be able to work on outside of that. It's still, it's, just, it's a pretty liberating experience because, yeah, at the end of the day also there isn't that little bit of pressure that you have in our normal work life where you do have to worry about making money. So you don't have to and ship, but you have to finish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to complete. We were talking before... Before we started broadcasting, um, we were talking about the challenge of going back and having all your ideas challenged. I mean, that, that, sorry, that double challenge there. Uh, what, do, what has the Media Lab done to the way you think about your work after having years developing your own process? 
Yeah, I think it's the most interesting thing right now is being able to work with people who don't come from backgrounds that are similar to ours at all. Most of the people we have classes with come from engineering backgrounds or are physicists or mathematicians. And being in an environment like that really, it, it's challenging at, coming from a background where, especially Sewe and I, we work with just the two of us all the time. And we, we're very good collaborators. But all of a sudden, you're collaborating with somebody who um, works in the cog sci or the neuroscience department. And that's really interesting. Um, and different. So, yeah, for us it's been challenging, but it's also really fun, and it changes the way we see stuff. Say, well, you said you've been going through a little bit of a struggle. I don't want to turn this into a group encounter session here, but do you want to talk a little bit about the design struggle? Yeah, I'd struggle love a therapy through? session right. right now. So tell me about your childhood design problems. <laughs> well, you said, you said this, is, this has really been difficult for you in a way you didn't expect to, co to come back and, and get your assumptions challenged. Yeah, so... I think it's, it, I agree with everything Taylor said, but I, the difference for me is working these five years in our studio where Taylor's my only, the only critical voice I have, I knew how to deal with it and it's, that's how we collaborate. Uh, but entering MIT, uh, the, the approach to how I was, you know, what, I, what was being asked of me in terms of describing my process and describing my ideas, had, had no, one, no one questioned that for five years. And all of a sudden, people were like throwing questions at me that I'd never had to answer. And that kind of, you know, that was like a hole I dug, like I just went into and I was just like, I don't know how to answer these questions, leave me alone. <laughs> but then I had to come out of it. So I'm, I'm like two weeks into digging myself out of this hole when I'm trying to figure out how to talk about my process, talk about what I want to do at MIT, and all that stuff, which I think is a really healthy thing, but it's also very tough for me to do. That does sound, I mean, that's like the, the design equivalent of like, of like deep cognitive therapy, where it's like <laughs> breakdown, it's like childhood trauma, I don't know. That's, but that's, I, you know, I love this. I came from an art background where I feel like you were always probing deeper issues about communication, about self in order to express it, even though what you're doing is commercial. And the fact that there's a commercial outcome as a possibility, it doesn't lessen the fact that it's self-expression. Oh, let's see a lot of a lot of nodding for the people listening. A lot of people nodding. Um, I, I thought another aspect of this you're talking about collaboration. I you know I think there's a lot of people who will work on their own very happily, and there's that core idea. Jessica, again, you talk to a lot of people, and you got this is what's great. I think you have this. Um, you wrap up like seven experiences in once. So you've been through graduate school, so you're forced yep. in a collaborative environment. You did a project with somebody else where you you know you talk to your hundred collaborators or people who agreed or you know thirty in the book that agree to be part of it. You have your collaborator on the book. Now you're at a company. You're working with other people. How does collaboration affect you? Where does that fit? Like, how much do you want to work with other people? How much do you feel it holds you back or brings you forward? I'm clearly a team player, as you've just described. Um, I think I really get a lot of energy from other people, and I feel like I can become my best designer, collaborator, leader when I'm working in tandem with other people. So I love being on teams. Um, I think what I've learned from people we interviewed and just my own collaboration and seeing successful ones is that I think the best collaborations are the ones where each collaborator is very different and good at different things. Um, 
that's true for myself anyway. Um, Tim and I are very good at very different things. Um, and that's why we work well together because we like, we enjoy different parts of the process. We, and then we can challenge each other because we don't have the same opinions on things and stuff like that. So I think a lot of the collaborations that um, people spoke about in the book are like, you know, my partner's really good at accounting and I hate accounting. And so they handle all the business stuff or they're really good at the ideation process and I really like to execute. And so those kind of things I think come out a lot um, and why people like to work together so well. Because I think the, also think the other th interesting thing about collaboration in the graduate school setting um, is that not a lot of people do it. Um, and so we got challenged a little bit about, well, this is your thesis project. Um, are you going to do double the work? You know, like, what, do, what does that mean for you? And we were like, we're going to make a business. That's it. See ya. Like, um, you know, I think it just became about greater, like, the whole is greater than either of us could produce by ourselves. And so that's why we collaborated. So oh, That's lovely. I like that. I mean, that's, I'd love to collaborate, too. But that's, that's that thing is that you... Uh, you enrich each other from it. I like this is a slightly different question, but Dan, what skills? Now we're going back to the counter group. What skills did you wish that you had that you might have been able to formally study or go acquire in classes before you went down the path for these different projects? Are there things that you wish you'd known, and you feel that when you talk to an audience, as we have here? in front of us, where you'd say, gosh, I wish I had taken that seven-week Rhino 3D class, or, or, gosh, if I'd known how to work a lathe, my life would be so much better right now. Jeez, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, maybe, like, actual formal industrial design training <laughs> in any way. Uh, no, I, I actually feel like Tom is the... Uh, is the answer to that. Like, I don't have to learn anything. <laughs> just, like, turn to Tom, and, he, and he's able to do it uh, or learn it quickly. Um, so, yeah, I mean, my first inclination was to say something, like, business-related, you know, like a, a business class or something, and uh, certainly I think that, would, that wouldn't hurt. Um, but I, I feel like that naivete has probably helped us in some ways, like... Uh, doing things just in a way that kind of on a gut level felt right and felt fair and felt honest versus like all these, you know, tricky business maneuvers. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I think the naivete is a good point because a lot of times if you knew better, you wouldn't have done it. So I, I like not knowing a lot about what you want to do. I think many people would say that like we just started a project because we wanted to, not because we knew it would succeed. Everybody at this table, I think, can teach themselves what they want to know is what I'm hearing. Or you hope you can, but you often can. Yeah, I think that's one of the main things we learn in grad school is yeah. that if you want to figure out how to do it, you can do it. And there's nothing to fear about that. That's good. It's, it's the, the technical term is being an autodidact, which is one of my <laughs> best words. But it's that idea that you know, people feel that things are unapproachable because they don't know how to do them and crossing the gap of ignorance. I don't know what you call that. It's like leaping. We're in a space with water all around us. If you leap across the open water here uh, to get from one side to the other, but then you fear you fail. I once taught myself how to program Perl in 1994 because I needed to write a shopping cart. And um, I probably shouldn't have done that, but I did. It's been the foundation of my career since. It was a horrible few weeks. But it seems like all of you have come to this with this attitude that... Um, the lack of specific training or knowledge isn't going to hold you back because you know that other people can obtain it. You know that it's done. 
Is that, does that sound right? That like you, because it's been done, you know it can be done, so you can figure out how it's done. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and you know, we're just living in the golden era of, uh, well, let's just Google that, you know? And so, um, but I, I would say, you know, I think just a general design education has been the thing that has served us all well. Like just learning how to approach a problem, I think is really the key. Uh, so everyone go get an MFA, and we'll meet back here in two or three years. But, well, it's true. I have an undergraduate design education. I feel like even as a journalist, anything that I've done, it's been informed by the idea of, of I think, of iteration, of breaking things down to a problem, things that can be solved. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's that you approach things. But that's why I always love the – I mean, I love the marriage of aesthetics and commerce because it, sometimes you're forced to do things you don't want to do, and that can be good. Yeah, like selling and- I was going to answer. My gut reaction of what you would learn was uh, negotiation, actually. Which is, a, I don't know if you're going to learn that, but if... Uh, Dale Carnegie School. That's, yeah, which is a weird thing, right? To uh, a skill, but yeah. You'd have to go back in time and study with my grandfather, who owned furniture stores, and he taught me a thing or two about, about negotiation. Uh, I have a nitty-gritty question I think everyone can answer, too, which is... Um, you've all done Kickstarter campaigns. You've all dealt with having sometimes enormous numbers of backers. Um, let's do a little go-around on this because I know you all have stories about how do you manage backer expectations when things don't turn out exactly the way that backers had hoped for? Because that never happens, but let's pretend it has and we'll talk about it. I think the simplest answer to that is really just be nice to people and be human with them, which you don't have to try to be because we're all human. Um, so, yeah, it's really just be nice, be considerate, and hopefully they'll do the same. Not everybody will, but um, in the grand scheme of things, it's really easy to get yourself tripped up on the one or two like really mean people who write really mean things and send you nasty emails, but that's what, like, 0.001% of all of these people who are just kind of fine with things. And for the most part, people are very nice, and you just have to not stress yourself out about the little bad things. Yeah, I think one thing we would have done... So we were, like, a year and a half over our deadline. Long time. Um, That was unfortunate, planning on our part, thinking that we would be able to get the book done in three months. I don't know who thinks they can get a book done in three months, but we did. Um, So I think we just should have been more... We should have had more updates. We sort of did them sporadically, but I think we should have just been more transparent with our backers. No, No one was, like, harassing us daily. We made a few people, but... I constantly felt stressed, like, every day. Like, we haven't shipped it. What are we doing? Are they mad at us? Like, should I be tweeting something? You know, I don't know. It's just a constant internal pressure once you say, okay, cool, you gave me money. I have to make something. I said I was going to do it. So as soon as you fulfill your goal, I think there's this pressure that happens. It's great. I mean, everyone wants to succeed and be backed. I just think that's, like, another side effect you don't necessarily think about when you launch a campaign. So it's sort of like navigating your own mental state after that. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say the same thing in terms of uh, transparency and frequent updates. Um, the one thing we've learned is nothing riles up a crowd more than silence. Uh, so if you're just, even if you're breaking bad news, if it's done in a clear and transparent way and you're explaining, you know, why the delay happened and what you're going to do to fix it. Like, of course, some people will be upset, but just saying nothing is probably the worst thing you can do. Yeah, 
I think Scott Thrift, who did the present, is maybe the best managed campaign in terms of set expectations. And what he did is essentially said, every full moon, I'm going to send you an update, whether I have something to say or not. And there were times where there's nothing to say, but he would just like post a video of something beautiful. And that was enough. That was just like a heartbeat to be like, hey, I'm still here. I'm still working on this, but nothing's happened, but I'm still going to say I'm here. And I thought, you know, I, I watched, we backed that campaign and every, it was like 100% happiness rating, I think, on that campaign. Cool. I, just one, I think one thing to kind of piggyback off the, not necessarily taking to heart the kind of like, you know, 1% haters. Um, I think one kind of tip is to, if, you know, say you post an update or something or you communicate something and, you know, some people start complaining or, you know, being trolls or something, um, just wait and don't respond because we've really found that there's like the white knight, you know, Kickstarter backer will come in and be like, what the heck are you talking about? Like, chill out. Like, it's much, it's much better if it comes from not you because then you get in this like sparring battle with someone who's just like, that's all they're there to do is to just like spar with you and be a pain. So, uh, so that's just a little thing, but we've noticed that's. Some some people back your project so they can complain about it later. <laughs> so it Still seems like way. doesn't like why is this? But there's a tension between the tension between whether um, people are patrons or they're purchasers, and uh, you all have faced that, I'm sure. And has Kickstarter uh, you feel like it's switched over in terms of expectations, or does it vary from person to person? Still very widely. Lots of shaking heads. I, I, I think we felt like it's changed. It seemed, I mean, we've, so we've launched four camp, Kickstarter campaigns now, and uh, things have seemed to change a little bit. So more, more product, like people have an expectation of product pre-order now, less patronage, or, or has uh, it shifted the balance between... I think, I think very less people think that Kickstarter is like Amazon.com, so that's good. They understand what the process is. Um, but then... Some of them definitely feel like it is, you know, just pre-ordering our product. So I, I think it has I just matured. It's just matured. People understand it. Have any of you thought about um, for future projects? Like there's, there's different models evolving, and um, we'll get a little technical, then we'll go back into feelings here in a moment too, I promise. Um, the, but I think there's some nitty-gritty stuff about there's sites that have started up where they do uh, escrow for different stages of products or ones in which uh, there's, you know, there's a few different ones um, in Portland and New York that are working on these ideas of... Uh, when it's funded, then suddenly it goes from um, perspective to then it is a pre-order. Like the minute the dollar amount's reached, then they're just taking pre-orders. And, or they stage out like, okay, we've reached this batch. I've seen some Kickstarter campaigns where people say 500 products are available to be delivered on October 2013. 500 are available for November. And they stage it that way. Do you have any thoughts about having gone through this, about uh, trying different approaches or would it put too much constraint on you to, to put yourself in the hands of a, of a third party that would then dole out money? It's too new. I'm asking questions about the future. Yeah. I think conceptually what I like about Kickstarter or their original idea for Kickstarter is that you're funding a product or an idea. You're not funding a business. There's some things that have been written that are really interesting about how much money you should ask for. Like, don't ask for just enough for the product itself. Ask for a little bit more so that you can turn it into, a, like, a business and some other sort of psychological price structures. But I like this idea of, like, you have an idea, you want to make it real, that's what you're going to find people to support. Um, 
I think some of these other things you're talking about are interesting. Um, I, I guess it remains to be seen, like what the best model is. But yeah, those seem. To, I, I'm not very familiar with them, but they seem like they would make sense for uh, like established businesses who can release products easily. I mean, like we could maybe be in the position to do some of that stuff. Um, but you know, I think we would not like the idea of like having some other third party like. A good, and, and for us, this whole transaction in Kickstarter is about trust, right? And so um, we would much rather have the control and trust of our backers and them completely understanding why we need the money and like, why we need it now and blah, 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 and just letting us make that decision instead of having some third party in there. But I can understand why there's like risk mitigation and stuff, but that makes sense for some Right, but some of it's about the creators. Uh, I mean, right, because if you get a, we've, we've all heard there's some stories where people get a giant, giant sum of money and um, they underestimate the tax obligation or manufacturing and the thing blows out. I mean, the relatively few is the amazing part given the, the quantity of them. And I've even seen some recently where people have gone through huge extents to refund money when um, a project hasn't happened, which is tough. There's a few big ones I think that's going to happen with soon. Um, so let's get back to some, let's talk about emotions again. You might bury white. I'll get very close here. The um, uh, one of the questions, one of the questions I asked people before this event was about uh, the joy of doing this. We're talking a lot about pragmatic things and creation and ideas and so forth. What Taylor, since you're closest to me, I'll ask you for first. Um, you gave some thought to this. What is the thing that that um, that gets you the most, brings you the most joy when you're working in this space, when you're when you're engaged in creation? So for me. The answer to that question is pretty much always when you're starting out a project at the very, very early stages where you have some semblance of an idea and it's all of a sudden you have to start to go into the materials and figure out how you're going to make that. And once you engage with those materials and start to explore what that, how that thing is actually going to be in the world, you, you have to learn a lot. And all of a sudden you learn things and uncover things that you never knew were there and that starts to reinforce the original idea that you had in some way. And that's a very beautiful moment because all of a sudden things start to get easy where like maybe your path at the beginning was like this kind of vague compass. And now once you learn more about actually what it's going to take to do what you do, you find out that like things just kind of fall into place in a way that's really beautiful and elegant. That's great. Now top like that, that, everyone else does. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Say, wait, you had a more specific example about something that, that came along. Yeah, for joy. Uh, yeah, so recently, maybe, I guess it was the summer. Uh, so I, I'm super interested in building weird vehicles. Uh, and this is just for fun, not for product. I have incumbent, penny-farthing style uh, chainless spike that I made. Uh, and I don't, it's not very efficient. It's never going to be a product because it's not, it's really hard to ride. It's, it's terrible. It's like, it's really a challenge to ride it. But I was riding this around my block and this guy came up to me and was like, what is that? And on the spot, he's like, I want to, I want you to, I want you to come to my metalworking studio. So I, you know, I followed this guy, some strange dude. We walked a couple blocks, and he showed me his studio, and he's like, he showed me this corner of his studio. He's like, here, you can have this corner. It's yours. Let's work together. 
I was just like, this is the most amazing thing. Like, I, if, I, if that could happen to me every time I make a new weird thing, like that only I appreciate, but then I find someone else in the world that also appreciates it, and we can share that, that, that for me is enough. Like, I don't, you know, I can be done with that product. It's a people recognizing, like, kindred spirit kind of thing, right? They saw it and it had struck the same chord in them. Yeah. Well, that's lovely. This is becoming like a... We are doing therapy up here. It's beautiful. <laughs> that's right. If it works for us. Jessica, what, what brings you joy? Because you've talked to a lot of people about their own joy, too. Um, specifically with the book, I think just so many readers reaching out to you and saying, like, I really enjoyed it, or I just quit my job because I read your book, and I'm like, oh, that's so exciting. I hope that you do well. Like, uh, you know, um, you know, I am excited. A lot of people are saying, like, that they've learned so many things just by reading, like, inspirational stories um, from other people who have done it, and I think, I think just that feedback is what makes me happy that I put something out in the world that other people can enjoy. Like, that's it. Uh, it's when the dollars come in. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Turn this around. Uh, I think uh, when you asked that question, we had a bunch of different things. But for me personally, I, the thing, the situation I always think of, um, we, we got our glyph manufactured in South Dakota. And it was like the first, you know, first time we'd ever really been in a real factory. Um, and just like standing there and like watching like people like buzzing around doing stuff and there's like a little glyph that like you know comes out and like you know it's done and it's like what like we're interacting with this like huge gear of like industry and like people and all this stuff happening and it just feels um feels like otherworldly i don't know it's just like really kind of invigorating and like exciting to um be making something that like moves the world kind of and i don't mean like emotionally i just mean like like is like working with the world in that like strange way and like commerce and all this stuff. So it's just a really interesting thing. Were you were they hot off the assembly line? Like yeah, like hot? literally, it was Dan like the first day, and we like you know had not seen anything. And these machines are running, and then like out one comes, and we're like ah, hey, look, it's like real. Is, do you have an Indiana Jones like scar on your hand now where you grabbed one <laughs> yeah. and there's like, to clip permanently there? Yeah, so it's you know it's really great. And I think Dan, you know. Yeah, it was, uh, the thing that always sticks in my mind is, uh, so we had just shipped the glyph, um, and so I had, like, a, uh, a saved Twitter search for glyph, and then, so, like, you know, we shipped it, USPS, first class or whatever, so a couple days later, they start to just be popping up, you know, people taking pictures of the bubble mailer that they got, you know, in the mail, and it was just, like, this crazy moment of, like, holy cow, like, this thing is real, and people are, like, see me now, like, it was, there was a, a real sense of closure to it, like, it had been this whole, you know, journey of the design iteration and everything in manufacturing, and then it was finally kind of, like, finished in a way, and it was, it was amazing, it was cool. I, I love finding out who knows about your product, also, and it's like, how do you know about a thing that we made, right? Like, we heard the other day that, like, Pharrell had a copy of our book, and I was like, Pharrell? I was like, that's awesome. Like, what? How? I don't know the answer to that question, but I would like to know. I, that exciting moment, I was interviewing somebody, and I said in passing, oh, I do a podcast called The New Disruptors, and they said, I know that show. And I said, you do? I'm so excited. Because um, so I didn't know anybody who wasn't, you know, it's a very small listenership at that point. Uh, um, uh, the thing that comes out, I think, in common to all those stories about joy seems to be the, um, there's a physicality for all of us that work in electronic media all the time, that, you know, hot off the assembly line, hot 
hot lead, hot um, welding equipment, um, hot proof sheets off the press. He's like, there's something about the act of creation. I don't know if everything has to be hot or not. Maybe there's cold processes <laughs> we could do too. But there is something. It seems like that we're associating with that physical sense of making things. I know we're talking about products tonight, but that it's a palpable thing because we're so used to working with electronics. Has that changed for all of you? Does it change your having produced things now? Does it make you feel differently about spending so much time looking at a screen or creating things that are only in bits? Well, my favorite question I don't know the answer to yet is can you have the same emotional or like physical reaction to a digital product that you can as a physical product? That is a great question. I don't know the answer to that, but because we all make apps or we're making websites or we're making all these things that we work so hard on every day and people interact with them in those same ways. I mean, people have millions of users for a web a website. I think... I just don't know the answer. Um, and I think it's interesting to sort of always try to combine these digital experiences with physical ones. Or that's what I'm interested in anyway. We only know about former societies for the artifacts they leave behind. And I don't know what's going to be left behind by all the electronic artifacts. Uh, there was a fire at the Internet Archive. And it's one of these, like, is that an oxymoron or something? Everyone's fine. No one was injured. And some of the material they were scanning and some of their scanning equipment was hurt. But you're like, there's a fire at the Internet Archive. There's something weird. And they have off-site backups, fortunately, redundancy and all that. Because you can make multiple copies of things that aren't real. But real things you have to make. <laughs> it's a lot harder to make them. Uh, well, I think this brings us to the end of our hour or so talking about stuff. So parting comments for budding product creators. Lessons learned. We've talked about a lot. Things we should have known. we talked about a lot. But what, what should people do when they, wanna, when they have an idea? They have this thing burning inside them. Again, hot. Sorry. It's a theme. Uh, this idea burning inside them, waiting to get out, bursting from their forehead like Athena from the head of Zeus. What do you do? How do you get that out there into the world? Uh, I will steal our last slide from some presentation we gave. Uh, I think... People touch on this tonight, but I think, you know, when you're thinking about doing something and you might take it full time, like make sure that you're passionate about it because if it ends up being successful, you're going to have to do it like all of the time. So, um, you know, make sure you like it. Um, a couple of things that we like to think about is this idea of creating opportunities for others. Um, I think because Kern and Burton is a community project and we run a few other things that are very community-oriented, and I think one of the things that made our project successful is we built a community um, before we launched Kickstarter, for instance. So I think that we were really successful because we we had a communication, a dialogue, and a trust with people that wanted to see our product become real. So for us, that was really important. I think I'm a little bit opposite of Tom. Like, I think... I meet a lot of people that are super passionate about a project, but they're afraid to launch it. And I just tell people to just launch it. Like, it's, there's nothing to be afraid of. There's never going to be enough preparation. And, you know, if you just have a hint of being ready, you're ready. And you should just do it. And then everything will just, like, you know, you'll just panic and you'll figure it out on the way. And I think that's the way to do it. Build a plane after you jump off the cliff with all the parts in the bag, right? Yep. That's the way to do it. Okay, Elida, I have one more question. <laughs> this came up at XOXO, and I hear it a lot, actually, and I figure I've got a group of people who can answer it, too. So they wonder, what am I going to ask? Um, and the question is about talent and competency, because this comes up a lot. People are, in, are told, you have a passion about something, you should go and do it, and so forth. How do you tell whether what you're doing is actually competent and interesting, or do you care? 
Do you just meet your own test and put it out there and you don't care what other people think? Where is that line for you all? I think for, for myself, the test is really myself. And if I feel okay about it, then somehow that, that can translate to... I, I just automatically assume that other people are going to like it, but it's probably wrong. <laughs> um, but I think I do... I, I, thinking back to some of the early things that, we that you mentioned in this... Um, a thing that I often do is just try to understand why I think things are good in the world, and I'm constantly going through that in my head, like when I'm not talking to somebody or doing something else, and I'm staring in a, at a wall, like that's the thing that I'm asking myself over and over and over again, and I do that with my work, so I think it's just by looking at other things, looking at the world, and understanding what you're doing, and yeah, practicing, articulating why you think that thing is good. And just making it as clear as you can to yourself. Yeah, that's a hard, that's a really hard question. I think maybe the answer for me is when I actually want to make something real. Like I, then I have my answer. Like I think it deserves to be real and it must be good, at least to myself or other people seem to enjoy it. I'm going to put it out in the world and see, maybe they do, maybe they don't. But I think just this idea of having ideas and, and then making them real and that's, it's sort of just a test, right? I mean, you're never going to know if people will like your product or if your idea is good by whoever's measuring it unless you put it out there. So. Yeah, I don't know. I, I guess just kind of let your taste, you know, be the guide. So, uh, you know, if you have kind of a gut feeling that it kind of doesn't feel right or you're trying to trick yourself into, you know, it turning into something it's not, uh, it's maybe not the best idea, but we're kind of lucky as we have each other as kind of a, a check and balance. And so if if we're kind of aligned on something and both really excited about it, then we feel that's like a pretty good indication that we're on to something. That's good. And I guess there's also the voting process of crowdfunding, which can be useful. You put it out there. People vote for you with their, their dollars and their love, their love in the form of money. That might be helpful. Well, thank you all for being up. Here's Dan Provost, Tom Gerhardt, Jessica Heltzel, Seiwei Wong, and Taylor Levy. Thank you very much for being part of this panel. And thank you Thanks, all for coming. Man. Thanks again to Galapagos Art Space for hosting us at this event and for Rusty Meadows of Nearly Impossible for bringing me out to record the podcast. Thanks to Shopify for sponsoring. Go to shopify.com slash nd for more details about their robust e-commerce offerings. And thank you to Anthony Sajasi of Anthill Creative, who did the live audio recording for the event. You can now support the production of this podcast directly by becoming a patron at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Support us at a level of $1 or more per podcast. At higher levels of support, you get our on-air thanks and more. We'll be adding more patronage benefits over time. You can also sponsor this show. Visit podlexing.com, that's P-O-D-L-E-X-I-N-G, for more details about how to get your product or service in front of the attractive and clever listeners of The New Disruptors. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com, and our audio engineer is Michael Warner. Our podcast audio is hosted by SoundCloud. 
We are a production of The Magazine, an electronic periodical for curious people with a technical bent. Find out more and read free articles at the-magazine.org. We're also a happy part of the Boing Boing family of podcasts. This podcast is licensed under the Creative Commons by NCND 3.0 license. Feel free to distribute it intact and with attribution to us by linking back to our site. We only ask you don't offer it for sale. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time. Thanks for listening. Thank you.